Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you here with us this morning. Uh, let me officially welcome you to, to worship here at Bear Creek. It is good to have you this morning. I want to give you a few announcements uh, here as we begin. You can see in your bulletin we have several events coming up uh, that I'll point your attention to. We have both growth groups meeting this week. So Tuesday group, we pushed back a week. So if you're part of the Tuesday group, we have it this week. Uh, Thursday group, we also have our, our regular meeting this week. Choir practice will be on Wednesday. And Willard asked me to announce this morning that Young at Heart will meet this Tuesday at 11 at the Fellowship Hall. Um, if you have any questions about Young at Heart, I'm going to point your direction towards Willard. Are there any other announcements this morning? Yeah. Any, any other announcements? Let me uh, encourage, remind you that we do still need uh, volunteers for our children's story after the Advent season. And we also need some volunteers for our, our nursery. Uh, nursery gives us uh, an opportunity for our little ones, uh, four and under, to, to have some time during, during our service to be downstairs. And we need some people to volunteer for that. Uh, both sign-ups are there in the narthex on your way out. If you have any questions, let me know. If there are no other announcements for us this morning, uh, let me begin our worship service by reading to you uh, out of Psalm 132. This is, what, this is what the psalmist says and sings to the Lord. It says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This uh, psalm sings praises and prophesies of the one coming of David, the son of David, who will be sit, seated on his throne forever. And this is who we gather in worship. This is who we gather to celebrate 
This is who we wait for this Advent season. Uh, Pray with me as we begin our our worship this morning. Father, we thank you for for just this time that we can gather in, in your name, that we can gather as your people. And Father, would you send your spirit among us as we worship you, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would sing your praises, your victories, that we would celebrate the, the advent, the first advent of our Savior and King, Jesus. God, as we celebrate this first advent, we anxiously wait for the second. So, Father, here as we wait, we worship. Help us to do that this morning, that you would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that is worthy of your name. It's in that name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing together this morning. Our first hymn is 154, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Please stand and sing.
thank you. Please be seated. At this time, we'll ask our children to come forward. Aaron is going to lead us in our children's story and the lighting of our Advent wreath. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. All right. Um, This is the third Sunday of Advent, and this morning I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So, have you ever been in a really dark room, and maybe you were asleep, and somebody turned a bright light on? Has that ever happened? What does that feel like? What does that feel like? It's, it, you, like, feel scared. You feel scared? Yeah, because you get waking up. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like when somebody turns on a bright light in a dark room? Mm-hmm. Okay, It hurts your eyes too. It hurts my eyes too. My turn. Yeah. My turn. Your turn. Oh, well, what is it? Um, this thing is making around. And it can hurt your eyes. <laughs> well, imagine if you were the shepherds. Shepherds were not the type of people you'd be friends with. They were stinky and dirty because they spent all their time with stinky and dirty sheep. That's right. They didn't sleep in houses or in a warm, comfy bed, but had to sleep outside in the middle of the fields with the sheep. But here they are doing the normal job like every other day, sleeping with the sheep in the field out of nowhere. In the dark, dark night, there's this super bright light, brighter than the sun. And it's hard um, for us to understand why they were afraid. So do you think that would have scared 
them if they were out in the night and this big bright light just suddenly came up? Yeah, it would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? So the shepherds might have wanted to run away. Would you have wanted to run away if a bright light came out of the night? Yeah, it would have been a little scary. But the angels spoke to them, and they said, don't be afraid, didn't they? And they explained why. They said they came to give them good news. The Savior had been born, and he was in a town not far from them. So what do you think they did when they found out that news? That's right. They did. They rushed right over. They wanted to see this thing that they had been told about. And there he was, exactly like the angel said. And they couldn't believe it. So now we're going to talk about this Christmond. What does that look like? A little bit like a horseshoe. That part looks like a horseshoe. What about this part? It does, it does look like an A. I think we've all learned a lot more about the Greek alphabet this year than we would perhaps have liked. But the, the, the one that looks like an A is called Alpha. And the one that looks like an upside-down horseshoe is called Omega. And in the Greek alphabet, those are like A and Z in our alphabet. So is A the first letter of the alphabet? Yeah. And what's the last letter of the alphabet? Z. Right. So it's the beginning and the end. And in the Greek alphabet, the alpha is the beginning and the omega is the end. So <clears throat> Jesus is called the alpha and the omega because he was there at the beginning when everything was created, and he will be there at the end when everything is made new again. It's almost too good to be true that the Alpha and Omega would come into our world as a baby and sleep in a manger and die on a cross for our sins, but he did. Sometimes we may have a hard time believing something is true, at least until we can see it for ourselves. But the shepherds believed what the angel said, and that's what, why they ran over as quickly as they could to see the baby. Whether it's easy for us to believe it or not, the story of Christmas is true. And that's why we celebrate it every year. We have never heard of better news than was told to the shepherds that night so long ago. A Savior had been born, who is Christ the Lord. And just like the shepherds did on their way home, we glorify and praise God for all we have heard and seen, just as been told us to God's word. So, like the shepherds, we should always... Tell others what we have seen God do, right? Well, thank you very much. We're going to say a little prayer now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. And thank you so much for bringing us the good news of salvation into this world in a manger. And for telling the shepherds and giving us an example of how we should go out into the world and tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Aaron. In the front of your hymnal, uh, you'll find a copy of the Apostles' Creed. And every week as we gather and worship uh, here at Bear Creek, we recite this Apostles' Creed together because this is its truth. And this is what we gather around in, in worship. This is what unites us as the people of God. And so I invite you this morning, uh, sitting there in your, in your seats, to say the Apostles' Creed aloud with me. And then after the creed, we will stand and sing our doxology together. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. standing uh, we'll continue singing our next hymn is hymn 184 what child is this
Thank you. If you will, please be seated. Our choir has prepared an anthem to sing for you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I uh, invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. 
you don't have one, I'm sure you may have one on your phone. Or if not, there a, a, should be a blue Bible on the end of a, your pew. Feel free to grab one of those. And as you're turning there, let me uh, remind you one thing that I had forgotten to remind you of earlier this morning. Uh, Christmas is less than two weeks away now. Uh, and so we do have our Christmas Eve service coming up on Christmas Eve. I uh, hope that you'll, you'll join us for that. And so uh, be on the lookout for an announcement on time because I'm not sure off the top of my head. At 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock will be our Christmas Eve service. Um, invite somebody, bring your fr- friends, family, whoever's around, bring them and come and join us for a worship service on Christmas Eve. This morning, uh, our passage, as we are continuing through these, uh, this prologue to John's gospel for our Advent season, this morning we are looking specifically at verses 9 through 13, but I want to go back and begin at verse 1 and read through uh, everything that we've seen so far up to this point. So look with me at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, your word tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, its laborer strives in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen guard over the city in vain. Father, I pray that and know that unless the Lord blesses the preaching, the preacher preaches in vain. Father, I know and and ask that your word would go forth this morning and not return in vain. That you would bless the preaching and the reading of your word. And that your spirit would move among your people through this word. Help us to see your truth and to be overcome by it. To be to delight in it. To praise you because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christmas is that special time, as we've seen last week and over the last couple of weeks, Christmas is a special time of the year. But it seems that this time of the year, more than any other special times of the year, this time seems to be specifically geared towards children. 
I mean, think about all the different ways that we direct and aim Christmas celebrations towards our children. We have Christmas toys and Christmas pajamas and Christmas goodies that children just get excited over. I mean, you can see the excitement and the anticipation on their faces. Teachers, I'm sure that you are already seeing this excitement, anticipation for maybe not Christmas, but school being done for a couple of weeks. I mean, all of this joy that comes out in Christmas, it's, it's enough to turn even the oldest adult back into a child again, isn't it? I mean, what adult hasn't felt that childlike giddiness on Christmas Eve or first thing Christmas morning? And there just seems to be this, this spirit of, of childlikeness that flows through the air this time of year. And it's, it's wonderful. And while Christmas is definitely a season for children, and even the children maybe inside each of us, this morning I, I want to, as we look at John's gospel here, I want to present you with beginning with a hard truth about the children of God. But you see, with this hard truth comes an insurpassably joyous truth that brings the nations together as the children of God. And you see, because if if Christmas is a season for the children, how much more is it so for the children of God? See, Christmas is for children because Christmas is about a child. And through that child, you and I, we become children of God. So let me begin, but with this hard truth. And, And it's rather quite simply stated, but... Difficult to comprehend, I believe. Because the hard truth is this. Not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is a child of God. You see, we live in a, in a biblical, maybe even a post-biblical society. And, and this truth, I believe, I fear, is, is often missed. We believe and we, we argue that, that all have been made by God. We are His creatures. That we bear His image. And so surely we must all be His children. You'll hear it in such arguments and such statements as God made me the person that I am. I am who I am because of of God's work in me. And these things are true. But when we take this truth that we are made in God's image, that he has created us, we are taking this proper truth and we are making an improper implication of it. You see, bearing God's image means that, that God created us. But whether we are his children is determined not by our creation, but by our obedience. You see, children obey their father. Children submit to their father. Children acknowledge who their father is. And they live to honor their father's name, which he gives them because they are his children. You see, that's just not who we are. We are not God's children. We, we have sinned. We have refused to call him father. And we are not his children because ultimately we have rejected him altogether. Let me, let me show you two ways that, that we reject him, why this truth stands out in the passage. The first one is in verse 10. You see, we, we the creatures, have rejected our creator. Verse 10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him. You see, when God made the universe... He did it in such a way that creation itself would speak loudly of its creator. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Essentially, what the psalmist is praising God for is, is as he's looking out at his creation, he's saying that every day, day after day, night after night, creation itself is shouting its creator's name. And he goes so far as to say that there is no speech, there's, there's nothing in creation that is speaking of the glory of God that is not heard. And you see, to us, to, to those that, that know this truth, that we have a creator who's created all things, this becomes as plain as day. You see it around you. Herman Babing, the, the theologian, says, God's voice is in the great waters. That voice breaks the cedars. It rumbles in the thunder and it howls in the hurricanes. The light is his garment, the heavens his curtain, the clouds his chariot. He, his breath creates and renews the earth. He both reigns and causes his sun to shine upon the just and the unjust. Herbs and grasses, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by our Creator's hand. I mean, you see this in the world around you. You see his hand in his creation. The, the pastor Spurgeon said famously, looking out at, his, at the creation and marveling at what God has, has made, he says, I open my, my eyes as wide as I can because I think I can see God in the works of his hands. And what God has taken the trouble to make, I think I ought to take the trouble to look at. I mean, you who know God as creator of all things, do you not also see his hand in his creation? Do you see the beauty of his, of his face in his trees? Do you feel his gentle warmth in the sunrise? Do you see his majesty in the stars? You see it, don't you? And while it may be as, as plain as day for, for us who, who believe these truths, for those who deny this truth, they still see it, but it's blurry. Romans 1 teaches us that, that God has has revealed himself in such a way in creation that men are without excuse. Paul says that what can be known about God has been made plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And yet in that same chapter, Paul will say, that mankind, claiming to be wise, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, every religious system hangs on this fact. That there exists some deity out there beyond our scope, beyond our periphery, and we must worship this being. And the reason that every religious system hangs on this fact is because every human has ever existed, bearing God's image, living in God's world, looks at the creation and says, there's something out there. There's some being that exists out there. But because the vision of God is blurry, because it is, it is a little bit off, it's slightly twisted, it's like looking at God through a carnival mirror and saying, this is what God is like. Things just get a little bit twisted. It's just not quite what it should be. But this is certainly no excuse. In fact, John 
says that he was in the world and that the world was made through him, that we, we can see him in it, but the world did not know him. You see, in every village, in every town, in every city, in every nation, from the dawn of time until right this moment, humanity has rejected its creator. Everything we ever need to know about God is right there in His creation, proclaiming His glory, speaking His name, testifying of His goodness and the works that He's done. And John says very clearly, we did not know Him. We've turned away. We, the creature, have rejected our Creator. But we also see in verse 11 that the people, God's people, reject the promised one. Mankind refused to see the Creator through His creation, but God did not stop there. He did not leave it there. He chose to reveal Himself in a very special way to a very special group of people. His people. Abraham's people. And these were a people that had seen God do mighty things for them over generations and generations. I mean, this is the same God who who saved these people from famine by bringing them into Egypt where it just so happened that their forsaken and forgotten and almost murdered brother Joseph was ruling and was able to provide for them. When Egypt turned against Israel and enslaved them for four centuries, God broke their chains in in a mighty way with an outstretched arm. He led them out of that land of slavery. He gave them his law, which would safeguard them from the dangers of idolatry and keep them safe within this covenant of faithfulness that God had made with them. He led them then for 40 years through this wilderness, providing them with food and water and and not even allowing the soles of their shoes to wear out after walking on them for 40 years. He conquered their enemies. He brought them to his promised land. He gave them peace. And over the years, as Israel continued to grow and they eventually would drift into and towards idolatry and sin, God would not abandon them, but he would send prophets to bring them back, to call Israel back to faithfulness. And all throughout this time, as God is continuing to reveal himself in special ways to his special people, he is continuing to remind them of the promise that God was going to send a Redeemer. Man born of woman to crush the serpent's head. A descendant of Abraham to bless the nations. A prophet like Moses who would bring a new covenant. A king like David whose kingdom would never end. Promised Messiah that Israel waited centuries for. Just waiting, waiting, waiting for this promised one to come. Surely, that if anyone's going to see the promised one when he arrives and embrace him, it would be the people that have been told about his coming for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But then he comes. John says in verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus tells a parable pointing to this fact in Matthew 21. It's the parable of the tenants. And in this parable, he likens it to a master planting a vineyard. And he plants a vineyard, he, he digs a fence around it, plants a, a duck, digs a, a wine press, builds a tower, everything that this vineyard needs for success, for, for bountiful fruit, is, is laid there. The groundwork is given. And then the master leased it to tenants, and he left for another country. 
And when the season for fruit drew near, the master sent his servants to the tenants to, to get his fruit. But the tenants took the servants, and they beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. So the master sent more servants, go and get my fruit. And the tenants did the same thing, killing the servants, stoning and beating the servants that have come at the master's bidding. Finally, the master sent his own son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. See, Israel, the the people of God, the ones who waited so long for the promised Messiah, for the Redeemer to come, when he finally comes, they respond to him in the exact same way as the rest of mankind has responded to its creator. Not only did they reject him, they killed him. And it doesn't really matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we have each and every one of us rejected our creator. We have rebelled against the master. And because of this rejection, because of this rebellion... Each and every member of humanity, though created in the image of God, no one can truly be called the child of God. But you see, but God was not done. Much like he used the slavery and the evil deeds done against Joseph in Genesis in order to to bring about the salvation of his people, so God used the rejection and the murder of his son to bring about the salvation of the nations. And the key to this salvation, which I want to spend the rest of our time into, the key to this salvation is faith in this son. The son that was rejected, the son that was crucified, the son that was murdered. Faith in him is key to being a child of God. Look at, look at the difference that verse 12 brings. You see, verse 10 and 11 are about rejection. He was in the world, the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's this sharp distinction between all of humanity who have rejected God and now those who have placed faith in him, receiving him, believing in his name, and then becoming children of God. Those who reject Jesus, those who spurn the light, who love the darkness, they are not children of God. But those who receive and believe and are born of God are, in fact, children of God. Let's let's break this down a little bit more. We'll begin with this receiving and believing aspect of verse 12. You see, he says there that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. These two actions are really one and the same. You cannot separate them and say, I've received Jesus, but I haven't believed in him. Or I've believed in him, but I haven't received him. These are one and the same. But there's enough nuance given to both words that there is a distinction between the two. You see, receiving Jesus means to welcome him exactly as he is. Receiving Jesus means to welcome him into your life exactly as he is. John Piper says, if Jesus comes to you as Savior, you, then to receive him means that you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. 
If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. If he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. And here's the important truth when it comes to this. I, I agree with, with Piper and all that he's, he's said there, but, but one caveat needs to be said. When Jesus comes to you, he comes completely. Which means that you can't receive his salvation without also receiving his authority. You can't receive his provision without also receiving his kingdom. And too often I, I think that we, in our, in our culture, in our day and age, whatever it is, we believe there is some sort of peaceful coexistence with us and Christ. That we sort of make this arrangement that Christ can come into our house and live with us, provided that he keeps the music turned down really low. And this is where so many mistakenly believe that they have received Jesus without actually having received him. Because you see, to take his salvation without accepting his kingship over your life is not receiving Jesus. To take his counsel, but, but not his authority, is not receiving Jesus. To take his teaching and his love and his grace and his mercy and to say, these things are for me, but then to spurn his commands and say, he can't tell me what to do. It's not receiving. Receiving Jesus means to welcome him into your life exactly as he is and entirely as he is. And then there's believing Jesus, or as, as John puts it, believing in his name. And to believe in the name of Jesus is to rejoice in who Jesus is. You see, I think that we, we get caught up in this idea of belief being some sort of, of intellectual agreement. We, we say yes, we say amen, yep, that's true. And we say that counts as belief. And, and I'm not convinced that it is. I don't think scripture teaches that that's what belief is. Because belief is more than intellectual assent. It's, it's not enough for anyone to simply say the right words and affirm the right doctrines. Because here's the reality. Satan and his demons affirm who Jesus is. When Jesus was here on earth and he was performing miracles and he was casting out demons, the, the demons possessing these men and women would come to him and, we, and would say to him, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come here now to destroy us before the time? These demons know who Jesus is, and they know what he's come to do, to destroy them. But you see, even though they know who he is, and they affirm the truth about Jesus' identity, not a single demon, not a single aspect of who Satan is, nothing in them rejoices in who Jesus is. They hate him for it. This is why we must understand that to believe in the name of Jesus is not just to say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God who, who loves me and died on the cross for my sins and rose again to new life. It is to rejoice over this truth. For your entire life to be upended in the most glorious way by this fact that Jesus loves you and that he died for you and that in him you have new life. Believing Jesus is to cherish him as a treasure above all other treasures. It is to delight in him above all other delights. 
is to marvel and worship of Him, to be satisfied in all that He is and all that He does. And John puts these two things in such sharp distinction that I, I, I can't, I don't want you to miss it in this. Because essentially, John is putting, is dividing the world into two groups of people. He says, the world did not know him, though it was made through him, and though he was in the world. His own people, though he came to them, did not receive him. But there is a sharp distinction between this group of people and everyone who receives Jesus as he is, and entirely as he is, and those who believe in his name, rejoicing and delighting in the fact of who Jesus is. And one group of people are not children of God, but those who believe, those who receive that these he has given the right to become children of God. What does that phrase mean, children of God? I mean, how do we classify our own children? I think for starters, children, we, we would all agree, children are born. They don't just pop into existence. Children are born. And to be a child of God, the, you must be born. Or as, John, or as Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. You may be familiar with the story. If not, here's, here's the recap of what happens in John 3. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And if you know anything about the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry, they weren't too fond of Jesus. They disagreed with him at every turn, and they found ways to try and trip him up, to get him in trouble with the public. Nicodemus belonged to that group of people. But Nicodemus was different in that he knew Jesus was right. He knew and believed that Jesus was sent of God. And he, couldn't, he was wrestling with the fact of, of what Jesus said and what he believed as a, as a Pharisee. He was trying to put it all together. And so what Nicodemus does is he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night when all of his other Pharisees and everyone else is sleeping and no, one, no one's going to know that Nicodemus is coming. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he's like, look, i got questions. I'm, I'm struggling here, Jesus. I need your help understanding this. Because I, I believe that you are sent from God. I believe that you are possibly the Messiah. But I also don't know what you're, these, these sayings that you're teaching, these miracles that you're doing, I can't put the two together. And Jesus in that moment says, Truly I tell you, Nicodemus, that if you want to be a child of God, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus rightly is very confused by this. And he says, wait a minute. You're telling me I, I have to re go back into my mother's womb and, and come out? How does, how does this work, Jesus? I mean, help me out here. And Jesus says to him in John 3, he says, no, no, no. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And in John 3, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, and he's teaching us. He says, though you may be physically alive, and you are physically alive because you have been born according to the flesh. Therefore, you are physically alive. You are spiritually dead. Because in spirit, you have not been born. And to become spiritually alive, which is the same as to become children of God, we must be spiritually born. Or as Jesus puts it, we must be born again. How, may I ask, does that happen? How are we born again of the Spirit? Well, thankfully, John helps us and clarifies it for us. 
here in John in, thir- in verse 13. He says at the end of 12, he gave the right to become children of God. And then verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So three knots and then an affirmation. So how, how are we born of God? First, we are born not by heritage. Or as John puts it, not of blood. Your race, your ethnicity, your spiritual lineage means nothing in terms of your spiritual life. I'm thankful for the, the men and women that have poured into me over, over the years that have formed me and shaped me and poured God's truth into me. As a young boy all the way up until now, I'm thankful for them. But their faith does not save me. They teach me, they pour into me, but it is a faith that must be mine. And so it is with you. You could have your name plastered on every one of these stained glass windows. It wouldn't matter a bit. You could have every building on our church property named after your family and have grandfathers and great-grandfathers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers who have left a lasting legacy here at this church of faithfulness. But it doesn't matter a bit if you don't have faith. Because you see, God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. And the question that you must ask for yourself is then, am I this child of God? Because you see, children of God are, are, are born not by heritage, nor are they born by sincerity. Not by sincerity. Or John puts it, not of the will of the flesh. I grew up in a church tradition and was taught from a very young age that in order to be a, be a Christian, in order to be saved by Jesus, you had to pray a specific prayer. And that as long as you said these words and you truly, really meant it with every fiber of your being, then you would be saved. And I remember praying that prayer the first time really meaning it, closing, gritting everything I had, trying to make sure that I I fully meant it. And then opening my eyes at the end of the prayer and nothing had happened. And I said, well, maybe I didn't mean it. So I prayed it again. I prayed it again. I prayed it again. I prayed it again. And I prayed it again. Continuing to wait for something to happen because maybe I'm not meaning it hard enough. Maybe I'm not as sincere as I need to be. And see, the problem with this understanding of, of sincerity, of salvation through sincerity, is, is that it's based, that it puts the basis of salvation on something as flimsy as my own heart. I mean, anyone here ever, ever done or said something that you were very sincere about, only the next day to say, well, now that I think about it, I didn't mean it that way. Or I, I've changed my mind on it. <coughs> I mean, do we really want to believe that something as important as eternal life would be left up to the ever-changing emotions and intents of the human heart? I can't help but think of, of how many, especially recently, how many popular evangelical figures have turned away, have walked away from the faith and have said, I think I was a Christian at one point, but now I am no longer. That's what happens when you have salvation based on sincerity. 
is a people who think that as long as I believe this for a time and then my mind changes and I'm no longer this. Church, salvation is not based on, on you. It's not based on how, how well-intended your heart is. Because your intentions change, don't they? What a frightening thing to think that your salvation could change as quickly as your intentions. But praise God it is not so. We are not saved by heritage, nor are, we, nor are we becoming children of God by sincerity. Finally, we are not by effort. We are not born children of God by effort. This is what John says, nor of the will of man. The literal translation here is, nor of the will of the husband. And you see, a husband, as, as leader of his family at this point in time, was the driving force behind having children. That if, if he wanted children, he was the initiator of intimacy. He, he planned it. He mapped it out so that whether or not he and his wife had children depended not on her, but on his shoulders. And it would depend on how hard the husband would work and strive and plan and prepare towards that end. So John is using this language. He's saying that being a child of God is not dependent on the desire or the effort of man. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad, ever. Because one bad deed is enough to damn you to hell for all eternity. It doesn't matter how often you sit in that pew. It doesn't matter how many committees you serve on. It doesn't matter how often you spend reading and studying your Bible. None of these deeds can save your soul. Not even the best of them. The Bible goes so far in speaking of these best deeds of ours. In Isaiah 64, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds like a filthy rag. What Isaiah is saying there, what God is speaking through Isaiah is saying there, is that your best, most righteous, most almost perfect deed that you've ever done, God looks at it as if it's a filthy rag and says, what is this? What am I supposed to do with this? Because you see, your efforts, even your best and your most righteous and your most holy attempts at at, at righteousness, they cannot save you. They cannot make you a child of God. Your heritage, your sincerity, nor your effort can make you a child of His. So what can? How does John end verse 13? To be a child of God, we must be born of God. And this is done only by His sovereign grace. The only way to be a child of God is to be born again. And this is done by the work, the desire, the covenant of God alone. We believe that God alone saves, which means that he alone must do it. And there is no other way. You see, not many, not many like this. We, we tend to brush up against this idea. Because this view that God must do it and is only in God's hands, it takes away any responsibility and any weight off of my shoulders. It takes the work out of my hands. And whether or not I'm a believer, whether or not I'm a Christian, is not up to me, but it's up to him. We don't like that. But you see, that's exactly the point of salvation, is to take away any possibility of boasting from your hands or from mine. I mean, think about it. If salvation were based on your heritage, then those who were saved would boast in their bloodline. 
If salvation were based on your sincerity, then those who are saved can boast in their sincere hearts. If salvation were based on your effort, then those who are saved can boast in their own strength. But as it is, those who are saved are saved not by their effort, not by their sincerity, not by their heritage, but only of God, which means the only boast that a Christian can truly make is a boast in the Lord. Praise God that he's done it, because I certainly couldn't have done it. Praise God that he has saved me, because I couldn't save myself. Praise God that he elected me and chose me before the foundation of the world to be his child, because if it were left up to me, I would still be left in the darkness. only way to be born of God is for God to do it. The only way to be born again is for His Spirit to move among you and move inside you and to instill this faith in you. And none of this originates within you. It is all by His grace. So as we bring all of this together, sort of landing the plane we see in these verses that all of humanity has rejected Christ. There is no one righteous, not even one. And to receive Christ, then, is to believe in his name and all that he is and all that he's done and to delight in this fact. And those who receive Christ, those who believe in his name, are, in fact, children of God, born of God. And there's no mention of the timeline here. It's not we receive and then become children or we are children, then we receive. These two things happen so closely together that they are indistinguishable. Believing you are a child of God. If you are a child of God, you have believed. John does not say which comes first, but that both must happen. And all of this is done by the finished work of Christ, by his death and resurrection, which is applied to you by his spirit as he brings new spiritual life into your once dead soul. All of this demands a simple response. Because you see, there's one verse that I've, I've not touched on yet, and it's verse 9. It says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. This enlightens could also be translated, which sheds light on everyone. Because as, as this light, which is Christ, as he comes into the world, his light will shine on every corner so that there will be no darkness. Which is a very scary thought when you think of it. Because each and every person to have ever lived will be exposed by this light. Every deed, every thought, every inclination of the heart will be made as clear as day. There will be no shadows, there will be no corners to hide it. And it is under this all-revealing light that you must ask and answer, am I a child of God? And really, there's only two ways to know for sure. Because as this light comes, you will do one of two things. You will either flee to the darkness or you will embrace the light. See, those who are not children of God will run. They will flee to their sins. They will cling to their darkness for as long as they can. 
And so if you wanted to know whether or not you are children of God, it is quite simple. 1 John 1 says that if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Are you walking in darkness? Are you living in sin, in hidden sin that no one else knows about, but you do? Be very careful to consider yourself a child of God if you live in the darkness. But hear me on this. The light has, in fact, come. And this light exposes everything. And as fearful as that may make you, as terrifying as that sounds, yes, your deeds, your failures, every single one of your mistakes, all of your secrets are brought out into the light. But the grace of God makes it so that there is no shame. There is no fear of punishment. There is no fear of judgment. There is only grace. There is forgiveness. There is mercy. There is no longer a need to hide. Because in that grace, under that light, you are born again, a child of God who has received and believed the Son of God. This aspect of being a child of God was so monumental to John that he filled his first letter to the church in Ephesus with this imagery of being children. He called the church little children. And he says this in his, in his first letter. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I began this morning by pointing out that Christmas is for children. And I stand by it. But I add that it is especially for the children of God. Is that you? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. That reminds us that we have sinned against you that we have rejected our Creator. We have rejected our Savior. But in you, there is grace. There is more grace in you than there is sin in us. And for that, we rejoice. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see whether or not we are your children. If we are, may we rejoice that it was your hand that saved us and not our own. If we are not, may we come to you and seek your face. We'd seek the Son to receive him and believe in his name and become children. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we respond to the preaching of God's word this morning, uh, we are taking communion. If you need communion, uh, Ron is at the back. Just raise your hand and he'll bring you uh, one of the elements. But just a brief word of instruction as we gather. The table is, is for children. The table is for children of God. That, and that may mean that you're not a member of Bear Creek. That's okay. 
If you're not a member of Bear Creek but are a child of God, then you are welcome at this table because this table is for the children of God. But if that's not you, then then I, I ask that you honestly consider whether or not you are that child, where your faith resides. Are you living in darkness? Have you embraced light? You know, at the table, we are reminded of what what Christmas ultimately meant. Because yes, it is God coming to dwell among men. Yes, it is about a, a virgin giving birth. Yes, it is about all of these things. But ultimately, without Easter, Christmas doesn't really mean a whole lot. Because you see, the, the Christ was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born with shepherds around him, born with animals, born in a manger, all of these things. But he was born more than that. He was born to die. He was born to die for you and for me, for our sins. And this is what he did. On the cross, we remember and we reflect on what our sins cost him. What our sins result in for us without him. The body of Christ broken for you. And in the cup, in the cup we look forward to when our king will return, to the second advent. The advent that we are still waiting on. Because when he returns, all will be made new. His light will reach every corner of the universe, and nothing will be left untouched by it. Until that day comes, we pray and we wait. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, to the King. Our final hymn this morning is 229, the first Noel. Please stand and sing.
bulletin is a copy printed there of the Great Commission, our benediction every Sunday as we dismiss. We are called by Christ to go and make disciples, to proclaim the beauties and the wonders of this gospel. And so we end it with this because this is what we are called to go and do. So I invite you to say the the Great Commission aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.